Amy Winehouse dies. Yeah, I heard about that, and I was like, wow, who is she again? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, I don't even know who she is. Yeah. What did she sing? I don't know. A lot of people I know are like really upset about it. Oh, Amy Whitehouse is that? I'm like, mm. all right. She looks like Smoochie. She looks like Smoochie and that woman that showed up on Friends saying, oh my God. You know the one. Yeah. You don't even know the name of the actress. God damn it. Yeah. Flint. Hey, howdy, sorry. Good. It's, I'm really amazed at how well Skype works. I mean, you're oh, yes. clear, and you're actually here, and all that. It's funny. Yeah, it's uh, great to have you on, Flint. Uh, this is the pre-show period where we basically try to form a rapport before yeah. everything starts crashing down. Great. Well, I'm pretty obnoxious, so it might take a while. Oh, <laughs> Just kidding. Then you'll be right at home. Uh, before we get started, though, uh, Rodimus Prime, is he an RV or is he a garbage truck? What is he? <laughs> <laughs> See, I always thought of him as kind of a – I always thought of him as a sports car. Uh, and, and no, he's not a garbage truck, but he's kind of like a. There was a used to be a car called a Camille. I could never figure it out myself, and I just figured it was something wrong with me that I couldn't figure it out, so I never asked anybody. Um, but uh, yeah, my sense is he was kind of a. There used to be a thing called an El Camino, where he's a little bit. Uh, what do you call it? Um, you know, a little bit pickup truck and a little bit uh, sports car. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Remember the old El Caminos? I mean, yeah, you guys are probably way too young to have ever actually seen. I've them. I've seen plenty I've seen on them. the road around here. So wow, yeah. Rodimus Prime's El Camino. Where uh, are you guys? I'm in Texas. I'm right out of Chicago. Uh, I grew up in Glenview. Yeah, I saw that you uh, grew up around here. Yep. I I thought I recognized some of the. Uh, some of that Midwest humor and uh, Sunbow stuff. Put <laughs> yeah, in a lot of special interest Midwest humor, you know. Just yes. So, so how awesome was it to to like you know work on a team that had you know you have an awesome name by the way. Right. <laughs> but how was it w- working with a guy with an equally awesome name, Buzz Dixon? <laughs> well, it's really. Uh, I'll tell you. Yeah, I'll tell you Buzz Dixon story. Okay, so. Yeah, I, I went to film school. I went to USC grad school and I got out and, you know, wanted to be a screenwriter, but, and, you know, had my scripts going around. I won a screenwriting contest. But the first guy that ever hired me was a guy named Joe Ruby, who owned a company called Ruby Spears at the time. Oh, and yeah. I think it was my first day of work at Ruby Spears where, uh, where Joe Ruby introduced me to Buzz Dixon and he said, uh, yeah, you know, I think you and Buzz would work really well together. And, and, you know, hooked us up on a project. It was called Cyber Force. And I can't remember we were, whether we were handed that name or we made it up, but I strongly suspect we made it up. And we came up with the, what I thought was just the single greatest intellectual property concept anybody had ever come up with. It's, of course, my first day in the business. And Buzz was kind of there with me, and we kept trying to sell it, you know, and Joe wasn't buying and I remember the I remember the next day, you know, Joe, Joe saying, "Yeah, now, listen, you know, Buzz is a really brilliant guy, but you know, he he gets real excited about stuff, and you know, it, what what you got to know is, you know, we're making, you know, the, we're making product for the network, and so we have to go with what we think the network will like, and I think it's a really great idea. I don't think we can sell it. And he was kind of saying, Buzz is a crazy man, you know, and uh, and we don't want you to be a crazy man." And what was funny about the whole thing is 
later Steve Gerber said, you know, you know, Ruby Spears ran into trouble about the time Joe stopped listening to Buzz's third idea. And Buzz is like a really brilliant guy, and his name fits him perfectly. <laughs> and I'm still to this day doing stuff with Buzz. You know, I cool. mean, you know, I mean, this is yeah, okay, it's like 30 years now. Oh, hold on, my phone just rang. We make it go away if I can figure out where. I, uh, well, that sounds like a good spot for a promo. Perfect. Emerging from the dark humor that was the Beast Unleashed podcast, Steve Megatron, TF and Mike, and Pecan Court Michael move on to Transformers Animated coming June 26, 2011, Transformation Animation Podcast. 15 podcast episodes covering all three seasons of Transformers Animated and the awesome toy line as well. We will also have cast and crew interviews, so get tapped this summer with the GeekCast Radio Network's next Transformers franchise podcast, Transformation Animation animation podcast decepticons transform and rise up all right uh, hello again welcome to animation aficionados uh today we'll be talking to flint dilly there's a dill no it's dilly you got it right very okay cute. flint dilly it's uh in fact dilly okay uh we have my co-host uh tv mr neil every time i look into a monitor prime my circuit sizzle. Oh, God damn it. Why'd you have to do that really <laughs> terrible voice deal? <laughs> I got one question off the bat for you. Yeah. Have you seen uh, Michael's Bay's movies? And what oh, yeah. Are your, yeah I what are the, your opinions? I did the video game of the first uh, Michael Bay movie. You know, we call it Bayformers. Yeah, everybody uh, does. And then was working on the video game for the third one until the uh, developer got shut down. Um, so yeah, I've I've uh, yeah I've seen all the movies. I've kind of studied them, been vaguely involved with them. So you know, in that game sense. So yeah, cool. So uh, we don't really have a a real outline per se, but we were just kind of go over uh, you know how you got into the animation industry, uh, maybe some old stories. Uh, Oh yeah, well, that's, uh, yeah, that's what I was acquaintances talking. that you knew, and uh, I, I think it's going to keep staring back the Transformers. But <laughs> that's because we're nerds and Transformers. Yeah. We have to thank you for Transformers the movie because that is one of the three most quoted geek movies out there. The other two being Army of Darkness and The Princess Bride. Yeah, it's right. Well, I like being in that crowd. Let me put it that way. I mean, <laughs> that Princess Bride. I that was one of the best movies I ever set uh, or ever saw. I mean, I really. You know, Rob Reiner was just on an unbelievable roll in that period. Um, yeah. And I remember I remember when Jay Bacall went to see it. He was the creative director at Sunbow. He called me up and he said, you want to see the 13th episode of Visionaries? Go see Princess Bride. <laughs> yeah, sure enough. <laughs> I felt like I was living in the same world. Okay. Um, let's see. Let me get some random questions out of the way and then I'll let Neil sure. grill you on some Sunbow stuff. Okay. It's a... Uh, <laughs> Okay, um, so anything new with uh, with uh, Buck Rogers coming up? I know you. Uh, well, we have. Uh, you know, I don't really know of anything specific. You know that where I can say, "Hey, there's this big new exciting." I mean, we have a film deal. You know, we'll see what happen. What's going to happen? You know, we'll get you know, get kind of reports that things are moving along. But uh, you know, it's been 30 years since the last Buck Rogers thing, and so I'll you know. I'll Sort of believe when I see it, but you know I'm I'm getting good reports. These guys may pull something off. Okay, Buck Rogers versus Flash Gordon. Yeah, oh, you know that'd actually be a pretty good movie. You know that that's almost the kind of thing you ought to do with, with Buck Rogers. 
Yeah, I mean, it'd be kind of cool to have them, you know, against each other or fight on the same side. You know, one of these big, <laughs> you know, you sort of, sort of turn that whole space world into its own, uh, you know, kind of kind of meta franchise like Justice League or something. Yeah, and have John Carter and Mars show up in the end and fight them both. Yeah, shows up at the end, and you get Adam Battle, and you kill him real quickly. And <laughs> who are some of the other rip-off Buck Rogers characters? Uh, there was, uh, wasn't the British one. It's really funny. I've, I've had to say, I've just, I kind of like passed the buck at the beginning of this year. Yeah, and, uh, I really haven't been doing a lot of, a lot of Buck Rogers. We've got a new trustee for the family trust. I, I see. I'm just a beneficiary. My sister and I are beneficiaries. Oh, okay. And, well, uh, you know, the situation was just kind of, you know, bucked up. And so, you know, it was, uh, yeah, I, I just, uh, you know, decided I, you know, I passed the buck. So that, that's why you're not getting much of an answer on Buck Rogers. I mean, yeah, there are people out doing a lot of stuff. Nothing, you know, there's not, you know, the big movie. There, I, oddly enough, I had an interesting game conversation yesterday. I mean, I can never entirely pass the buck. <laughs> yeah, because you, know, you can't, you know, buck your responsibilities that much. Anyway, sorry, I'm just getting bad here. <laughs> so, so that's why you're not getting an interesting Buck Rogers answer. No, it's it's cool. It's cool. And then there just came a point where you know, in the last couple of years, where yeah, it was just there's just a lot of complicated stuff with it, and it was it, frankly just taking up too much of my time because yeah, you know, I, I have my own career and do my own stuff, and there's a, a part of you that kind of like resents the fact that you know, you know, you're you're doing something your grandfather did 50 years ago, and something a little pathetic about that. So anyway. okay. Um... So Dungeons and Dragons, I got a question for you. Uh, what class is Venger in the uh, in the uh, game? Oh man, are you asking tough questions? <laughs> I might have been able to hack my way through the animated TV show. Um, I don't know, and I can't even remember D and D classes. I played so much Warcraft that I the two have kind of blurred in my mind. Um, so I don't even know what is the answer to that question. I don't know. I'm asking you. I. <laughs> I can't even answer wow. it. I can't even answer it. <laughs> okay. So yeah, you, you you see, like the the '80s mine is like you know it's like sort of getting old for the stuff to remember. Um, I was working on a project about Gary because you know Gary and I did a lot of stuff together. Yeah, you know Gary Gygax, and um, you know and that's a really fertile mine. That was a great creative engine back then. It really did amazing stuff. Cool. Cool. Okay. I'll let Neil ask the next question. Well, I don't know if these are really going to be questions, more like <laughs> just like idol worship. But Ben and I, uh, we don't we don't really plug ourselves on the show that much, but we're kind of like amateur writers. Uh -huh. Yeah, our comics on the internet and uh, Sunbow stuff was always like the the thing that taught me how to write. It was. I don't. I don't write how like a comic Man, you writer would write. <laughs> <laughs> so, what what I always loved were these were these scenes where like Hot Rod and Cup would be like in a in a tough spot, and they'd say like, uh, maybe we need a new travel agent or or a new PR man or stuff like that. And uh, I I just loved how you like how you drummed the uh, the toy mentality out of the show because if G one was done today. Uh, it would be like Beast Wars, where Optimus would be kind of a wet blanket. And... Yeah, yeah, you know what was what was really funny about that period, you know. And I've, I've said this a lot of times before. I was just talking to to uh, Tom Griffin about it. He just he called out of the blue. He was, you know, Griffin yeah. Bacall was Sunbow, 
And so Tom was my boss. Well, I guess Jay Bacall was probably technically my boss, but Tom and Joe were the big bosses, Tom Griffin and Joe Bacall. Um, and I was just talking to Tom a few weeks ago because we were thinking about doing a book about that period. I mean, part of it would be like telling the old stories and part of it would be about answering questions you know, that we keep getting from fans. I mean, you should see my Facebook, but you've seen it. Um, and, and then another part of it about was how, you know, those guys really built an amazing team and really put us in a perfect position to do good stuff. But stuff like the travel agent comments and all that, that was really in, in many ways, that was me imitating William Goldman and stuff like Princess Bride and stuff like uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he was really, he and John Milius were like, you know, probably my hero screenwriters at the time. And and if you go back and watch The Sting, you know, movies like that, you go back and watch them, and they were comedies in a really good way. Steve D'Souza, who was writing a lot of stuff right in that period, he wrote Die Hard and stuff like that. That, you know, that's what we were mainlining at the time. Hmm. And, and that's where a lot of that comedy came from. Hmm. Well, I do have to thank you for... Uh... You know, giving Optimus Prime the his first death and the most memorable and best out of all the deaths of all the incarnations and versions. Yeah, yeah poor guys can get slaughtered a lot of times. <laughs> well, it's we uh, really worked hard on that one. I mean, that, I remember there's a whole day on that scene. I've told the story a lot of times before, so maybe I'll retire it after this. Tell it one more time in the book, and then I'm done. Um, is the day that we cracked that scene? Yeah, because we'd rewritten that a hundred times. Um. Steve Gerber and I, and I think even Buzz might have been there, you know, for a while. People go in and out, Mike Hill and and uh, Doug Booth probably, you know, sailed in and out. But um, Steve and I were working on it, and Steve had this friend show up, you know, and this guy from New York, you know, that was doing comic books. You know, because Steve really brought the comic book guys into into Sunbow. I, you know, I, I brought the game guys, he brought the comic book guys, and then a lot of the people were animation writers, you know, to begin with. And, uh, yeah, you know, we were talking about how to kill Optimus and I was saying, yeah, you know, I, I want it to be as poignant as when Davy Crockett got killed in, uh, the Alamo, John Wayne's Alamo. And, you know, and, you know, this guy was working on his Batman comic and he was trying to figure out how to fight between Superman and Batman. He was saying, yeah, but did you ever see the 300 Spartans? And, uh, started describing that scene. It's of course Frank Miller. And so, like, all, you know, all those years later, I mean, we sort of cracked, you know, the end of his book. We cracked the Optimus scene. And that was, that was the first time I'd really ever thought about the Battle of Thermopylae. You know, and I was an ancient history major in college. But nevertheless, um, yeah, I hadn't thought about it from a dramatic point of view. But that was the kind of, that was the environment then. You know, as I mean, we had all these comic book guys coming back from New York and, animation guys feeling like they'd gotten out of jail because we were doing syndication and we weren't working for the networks anymore. Because the networks were just kind of an impressive environment at that point. It was the mm. beginning, the really malevolent beginning of political correctness. And, uh, um, you know, and then, and then you had, you know, so the animation guys were gotten out of jail and the game guys just thought it was kind of cool that, oh, we get to do like 130 episodes this year so we can actually sort of have a, a world that we're working in. Okay. I have one minor point about the Transformers movie that mm. uh, it's it, it's just it's it's nothing but uh, I'm one of these over analytical guys that always overthink everything. No. Yeah, I don't watch that movie. <laughs> but uh, but to me it's uh, 
one of the implications of the movie is biological life is in the minority in the universe, while transforming robot life is like in the vast majority. Because on in this movie, we see how many like four different worlds with transforming robot races. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we didn't have a lot of biological life products we were trying to sell that year. <laughs> So uh, there was a natural bias towards transforming, uh, transforming robot cultures. Though, I mean, I guess the Quintessons technically were robots, but I always thought of them as biological. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Interesting. I I always thought of the Quintessons as they were just these really brainy and extraordinarily lazy creatures who created the, you know, the Transformers to do their bidding for them. Ah, Okay. They were the original hedonism bots. Now, yeah, what's, what's kind of funny is I was watching some of, of uh, season three for when I was doing the box set. I was doing commentary on the box set, and you know, I figured I'd better rewatch some of it, and, and also for the games. And there was a moment in season three that I, I think it would be really cool if they'd explore it in upcoming movies, where you did go out around the universe, and the you know the Transformers are you know fighting giant lizards and. You know, and all sorts of, you know, you know, funky animal types. Um, and, and I think that'd be a really good, good thing to explore. You know, I, I got very uninterested in our show and, and, you know, with the Bay movies, which quite honestly, to be to be honest with you, I can have all sorts of quibbles with them. But I mean, they sure put up some big entertainment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like I always said about I was never bored watching uh, a Michael Bay Transformers movie. And uh, I know lots of people uh, criticize how the uh, robots transform, but I think it works for what it is. I think it's a lot of great eye candy and anything that was in those shots in those first movies in that first movie that wasn't a giant robot was all done with practical effects. So, you know, you know, if you want to criticize Michael Bay, you know, you can criticize him for a lot of things, but, you know, making things look good on that film. No, I looked, oh, yeah. and how do you make anything look better than any shot in the movie? You either have a really beautiful landscape, a supermodel, a F-22, a Ferrari or a transforming robot. I mean, life doesn't get a lot better than that. And then, you ruin the, you, then you ruin the show with, with Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, you got Shia LaBeouf. I forgot about him. But, I mean, you put him, that in there. That's like the art, art thing where you contrast all this really cool stuff and then you have Shia LaBeouf and his parents in there, yeah. Okay, I got a question for you, though. It's uh, if, yeah, if... I mean, I, no, I don't really mean to trash Shia LaBeouf. I mean, he's fine. You know, I, I just you know, personally cease to be interested in the Transformers on Earth after the Transformers. You know, just kind of after the first season, I, feel, I felt kind of like we'd done every Energon gag we possibly could. <laughs> By the time Power Glide started getting dates with human girls, it was kind of yeah. Oh, that was first season. I remember that was okay. The girl who loved Power Glide, <laughs> I think. Um, did Dennis Marks write that? I, I don't have any. I believe it was David Wise. David Wise, yeah, that was right early on because I remember Dennis Marks did one to write that. Maybe he did the Golden Pool. I I, I should like not Goon. That's my favorite episode. Um. You know, all that stuff, that was right around the time I moved over from G.I. Joe to Transformers. That, and as those were coming in as scripts, storyboards, and uh, and recording sessions right when I got on Transformers. Cool. Cool. Uh, so here's a question for you. If, if way back when they told you you had to fit the words more than meets the eye in an episode or a movie itself, how would you have done it? 
<laughs> because because the first Transformers Probably movie the least the least imaginative way possible, you know, just simply because it would have annoyed me. But I would have been, you know, yeah. There's more than meets the eye to those vehicles over there. I know. I'm just I'm just saying. Lots of people criticize the Michael Bay movie for sticking it in in a very clunky oh. way. Oh yeah, you know. I mean, but, but you're having fun. I mean, that's where you're playing with the icons of a franchise, you know. And I respect, you know. I mean. Yeah, I don't know. If that's Michael Moore, or Steven Spielberg, who, yeah, bear in mind Bay. is you know Bay, not Moore. <laughs> what? Bay, not Michael Moore. Bay. If, if Michael Moore made that movie, it'd be a, I mean, it'd be Bay. about I, the Michael Autobots Bay, yeah. hiding, uh, you know, the Autobots' healthcare or something like right. that. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you can tell I'm wide awake this morning. <laughs> um, yeah. No. You can, yeah. You can, whether that's Michael Bay or Steven Spielberg, I mean, Steven Spielberg seems to be much more kind of aware of franchises. Yeah. Uh, big surprise. And he's the kind of guy that say, you know, you got to play the the you know the the icons of the franchise. And if there's a phrase like "more than meets the eye," then you know, put it in there. Okay. Um, so with the GI Joe, uh, did you write any of the uh, any of the uh, knowing is half the battle uh, uh, public yeah, yeah, give those out? I don't remember any specific ones that I wrote, but every once in a while, you'd go, "Hey, we got to do some more PSAs." <laughs> Nobody wanted to do them, and I think I think I did like in that what you know the first season of GI Joe just because we didn't have anybody else to do them. You'd usually give that to the new guy, you know. Like I remember, you know, Mike Hill bitterly complaining they had to write some of them right when he came on staff, and you know, yeah, the new guy'd always have to do those, you know, or you know, some hapless hapless person would have to write them, and then we we kind of sit around the table and go over them begrudgingly. <laughs> And yet they ended up kind of classically wonderful things. Yeah. Have you seen have you seen the redubs that some fans oh, yeah. have done of those? Oh yeah, people send me that stuff all the time. <laughs> My favorite one's pork chop sandwiches. That one was hilarious. Uh, what was that one? I didn't I don't remember. It that. was the one where the kids started the house fire cooking something on the stove and then you had one of the G.I. Joe's running into the kitchen shouting pork chop sandwiches, pork chop sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's the kind of way a lot of those things would be when they were first written. I mean, like if Buzz got tricked into writing them or something, because he was story editor on Joe for a while. Yeah, you you would have to read them very carefully to make sure there weren't you know double entendres in there, and yeah. <laughs> you know he wasn't trying to slip something in there. Because I mean, yeah, you know, Buzz just has the imp of the perverse. I remember there was one episode where. He tried to tried to slip an off screen, you know, Joe's hanging a BA, you know, the Cobra in there because I mean, just the way he described it, you know, the, you could see where it would slide by a, a story editor that wasn't paying attention and it would get all the way to the storyboard guy. And you'd finally be, you know, sitting there in production and saying, well, we don't actually see it. So, <laughs> so you start trying to slip stuff like that in there. And those uh, <clears throat> we call them PSAs. The PSAs were the kind of place everybody wanted to put stuff like that. In. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, because that what the is... PSAs were, you have to understand why they did them. And that yeah. was, you know, they did them because network television was unbelievably politically politically correct. I mean, they would, they'd have these violence guys there, you know, then you'd have like, you know, five violence guys read your script and, and two of them would read it, you know, for legal reasons. In other words, you don't have the characters do something that you don't want real kids to do. Um, and then the other three would read it just for moral reasons of violence. And they, they'd put violence numbers on everything in the script. 
Like if you got hit by a wave, that was, you know, two points of violence. No. Knocked on a door, that was violence. So they knocked loudly. That's probably three or four points of violence. <laughs> and you could only have like 40 points in the whole. I'm not making this up. This is really how it was. You could have like only 40 points in the whole episode. You couldn't save it all up for a disemboweling or anything. And uh, um, so G.I. Joe and Transformers, we didn't kill people wantonly and, you know, and, and nobody got, you know, brutalized. But, um, you know, yeah, we did have, you know, there was a lot of violence and guys getting hit and shooting at each other, which was just verboten on, you know, network at the time. I mean, you forget having a gun. I mean, forget it. Um and so they did the PSAs to kind of say, well, we're good guys, too. Look at these PSAs where we have our Joe heroes telling you not to light your sister on fire. And stuff like that. <laughs> wow. Wow. So that was there. To, that was there as kind of a sop to all because there were all these children's violence groups out there then. And that was a big issue. I mean, if you look back into that period. And and a great deal of the stuff in the episodes, if you watch it in context, was about that. So what of, was your what was your favorite GI Joe character? Well, Flint. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I promoted him at every opportunity, but okay. uh, but other other than Flint, um, well, I mean, okay, there are things that yeah, Buzz's character was shipwreck, and I found him endlessly amusing what Buzz did with him. Cobra <laughs> Commander was great, you know. I mean, how do you not like that character? Yeah, uh, I liked working with the uh, the Dreadnoughts. You know, if they're just, you know, Zymax and or whatever, Tomax and Zymod or whatever the names are. Um, you know, they were a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, the two ninjas were kind of fun, though. The, I, you know, they weren't guys I tended to write very often. I tend yes. to write Clint and Lady J and Destro. and uh, The Storm oh. Shadow and the Snake Eyes were the right, two. Right, Snake Eyes, yeah. And uh, uh, I remember originally the, the big rivalry was in between them. That was something done later. Yes, but it's a really obvious thing to do. You know what I mean? You know, it's, I mean, it's like, yeah, you have two ninjas. Let's go ahead and kill each other. Um, uh, yeah, we there were characters we used. There were G1 characters that just seemed to turn up all the time. I mean, you know, there's no other medium, especially at that point, where when you wrote yourself into a corner, you could call in an airstrike, you know. So we'd always have, uh, you know, Ace. You know, that was really expensive in live action. But, yeah, you know, Ace showed up a lot. I don't think he had any particular personality, but, you know, he was always... I like the character simply because... For literary reasons, I could always cut to him when I felt like I, you know, was too scene bound. You know, one of those. <laughs> what do you think of the GI Joe movie? You know, what's funny is by, by the time I saw it, you know, it had been so brown mouth that that I'd had very low expectations. And I, you know, to be honest with you, I went there and it was just fine. And I think I'm really kind of kind to the, all those movies, you know, you know, just because I know how how hard they are to do. I, I yeah. know. It just, it, I just, I, I had one major problem with the GI Joe movie, and it was a conceptual one, and that is, I just hated those suits, those, you know, those super suits. Yeah, they they did that because Iron Man was hot. Yeah, and I think to me, it defeated the whole purpose of the Joe team. I mean, yeah, uh... that that I objected to and really really bothered me. What in in all those movies were were things that they did either pandering to current movies or things that you know you, you you know you know some wiener thinks it's a cool idea but it just doesn't make any sense to the franchise. Well, it's a uh, it's just it's just a weird thing. And the other thing that pissed me off about the movie was they killed off Cover Girl. Yeah, they should not have killed off Cover Girl. Yeah, she was one of my favorites and grossly underused. 
Yeah, I love CoverGirl. She up. was my favorite girl from the original yeah, cartoon. Yeah, she was great. I mean, I probably like Lady J the best, but Baroness could be great at times. <laughs> Scarlet always kind of bored me, but uh, um, yeah, and Cover CoverGirl was a great opportunity. And there was one other evil girl, wasn't there? I don't remember an evil, evil girl because, you know, you see Baroness, you're like, your brain shuts off on any other girl that's in the scene. Well, I, what was funny about it, you see, in those days, you know, they, you know, they all had to match the toys. And, and you couldn't sell a female action figure. Okay, they put them in there once again, probably originally out of political correctness. And secondly, you know, the, that wasn't that long after the village people. And, you know, the G.I. Joe could look pretty... Uh, Gonna look pretty gay, you know, if they hadn't had you know a few girls hanging around in the show. Oh, that reminds me. Do you watch Venture Brothers? No, what's that? Venture Brothers is a cartoon on Adult Swim, and they did a whole spoof of GI Joe once. Oh, yeah. You know, somebody may have sent. I mean, you see my Facebook page. I mean, people are constantly uploading stuff, and I'd say about thirty percent of the time, I actually get around to watching it. Um, yeah, it's a, well, basically they made they made the Joes ex- exactly like the Village People. Right. Well, Thanks. we were we were extremely cognizant of the fact that if you weren't careful, it would look like that. You and know, they, they were fighting against a villain called Sphinx versus Cobra. And yeah, uh, Sphincter. Yeah, I can, I can see that one. Yeah. It no, it was it was rather funny. Uh, I got a question for you. Uh, Cobra Law. Right. I know nothing about it. Okay, that yeah, the- was okay. Is I worked on GI Joe. I started out in like summer of 84 and I was kind of ghost story editing. I mean, it wasn't ghost in the sense that everybody knew about it. Uh, but I was helping Steve Gerber cause he kind of fallen behind cause he, you know, had unreasonable deadlines and yeah, he wasn't the speediest guy to begin with. And uh, probably the most brilliant, but not the speediest. Um, but, and so Steve asked me to help him story edit. And I can't, I basically was on Joe, I think for, for almost a year, pretty close from beginning to end. But in the middle of the season, they moved Joe and Tom wanted me to move on to, to transformers just because they wanted it to be older and edgier. They felt that they were competing at the time with a show called go butts and they wanted to really just knock gold. You know, they, they didn't, they wanted transformers older and they wanted to just knock off gold butts. And so that was, that was my mission. And that was a slaughter. You succeeded, yeah, it's, uh, but it wasn't. You know, when I when I started it, I mean, in a in a perverse sort of way, you know, I can sort of take credit for that. I mean, when we started out, it was not a slaughter. They were pretty, you know, there it was a pretty good fight. And then we just, you know, we just did everything we could to do it. And then we knew we'd won when we saw the Mattel ads that were clearly designed to confuse the audience into thinking that everything was a transformer and GoButs were just one kind of transformer. You know, we knew we knew yeah. pretty well beating those guys into the turf when we did that. <laughs> just just speaking from someone on the on the schoolyard back in those days, uh, it was Transformers was already starting to steamroll GoBots. Even if if it didn't seem like it on your end, it was already it was already well established. Oh yeah, uh, no, I, th- I mean I think it was just innately it was innately cooler. But the, their yeah. whole idea was, you know, it was okay. Let's let's you know. Let's err on the side of it being too old because they found with G.I. Joe that they, which they in the beginning perceived as an older show, it was getting great ratings. Because remember, it came out during a recession, so you had a lot of guys who were out of work watching it in the afternoon. Or, you know, adults were not embarrassed to watch it. And, uh, and the same thing happened with Transformers. Cool. Okay. Cool. Um, uh, 
And, and by the way, uh, GoBots lost that battle big time because in the IDW comics, uh, the writers love using <sighs> random GoBot designs yeah. as cannon fire their immediate lives. <laughs> Immediately die. Yeah. <laughs> we do Simon that. Fuller like gets Simon Fuller like giggles to himself every time that happens. Yeah, you didn't. You don't want. You didn't. We didn't want to get sued. But yeah, the idea always was that the GoBots were just the easily expended guys that you know in the beginning of a battle, and then you get to the real guys. There's there is that one. Movie. There is that one YouTube video where it's uh, Unicron eating Gobatron. <laughs> right. Cleverly edited the two movies together. <laughs> well, but anyway, when he, uh, when he hawks them up and spits them out, that's that's when I mean, you know the you know. Yeah, fights over. Yeah. But so, uh, but really, um, it's uh, I love watching Transformers the movie. I think, I think it really does come together ra- rather well. Even though it's it's you know the whole thing of killing off the old toys to bring in the new toys for the toy line. It's yeah. Well, here's here's the philosophical question, and that is, if we hadn't killed off a bunch of those guys, would anybody remember Transformers? I mean, I think the sheer no. trauma. Of, of doing that, which, I mean, we expected people to be kind of sad and bummed out. And we were kind of bummed out they were killing them off. But we, did, we didn't expect the reaction we got. You know, we didn't expect that, you know, it was going to you know traumatize an entire generation of kids. But I think that's also exactly why people still remember it. And that effect actually backed off uh, some people on the G.I. Joe movie from killing mm-hmm. Duke. Yes, well, the G.I. Joe movie, yeah, the G.I. Joe movie just kind of, for a variety of reasons, just kind of got hobbled. And as I said, I had nothing to do with it. I was, you know, I was, by the time they were really working on the G.I. Joe movie, I was probably off in Inhumanoids land or something like that. I, you know, I, I mean, I'd show up and they, they'd have meetings and, you know, they figured it was better to have me in the room than not. But I mean, I, I was not particularly helpful or, or instrumental, I don't think, in the movie. Because oh. I, I didn't know what Cobra Law was or Serpentor oh. or... <laughs> yeah, that was all alien stuff to me, and I didn't. Yeah, I, I, I just kind of didn't like it. But that's not because it wasn't good. It's just because I didn't know it. So I immediately uh, well, rejected. the funniest story Neil can tell the story of uh, Cobra Law, as he knows I, it. Uh oh. Well, it was basically it basically comes from reading a, an interview with Buzz Dixon was that uh, they went to Hasbro with the idea that, and he said this that he described Cobra Law to them, and he said it'll be like Shangri La. A cobra law, if you will, and then and then Hasbro fell in love with it, and he was like, "No, wait, that we weren't serious," and uh, that's that's how they got stuck with it. What I'll tell you about Hasbro, those guys were great. I mean, you, you know, you, you do not get better bosses than or you know than Hasbro, given that these guys are shelling out you know tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars on on this nonsense. It was Bob Prupus and Kirk Bazigian, and. Uh, and, and, you know, and they, it was more creative freedom than, you know, I, I ever had again, except for rare instances in games and when I'm writing my own journal. I mean, you know, they really, as long as you showed their stuff and, you know, what they wanted you to show and, and, and all that, they really, you know, they, they were incredibly, you know, supportive and helpful and hands off. You know, they're anything but obtrusive. That changed later on. But for G one, yeah, you know those guys were just great. I've, yeah, I've, yeah, I have no complaints. Hmm. I still communicate with Bob Propus, I mean, you know, and I think he's still my Facebook friend, you know. And then he he was a genius with toys, and so was so was Stephen Hassenfeld. Hmm. Yeah, he really was. And Tom and Joe are still, you know. I mean, I, I look at them kind of as buddies now. They used to be my bosses, you know, and they're they're older than I am, but they they're just great guys. 
So out of all the Transformers uh, franchises since uh, since G1, uh, what, what, what have been the high points and low points for you as someone who has been involved in Transformers? Oh, I got to be really honest. And that is, you know, when I got done, I, I sort of more or less start, stopped paying attention. Okay. You know, yeah. Asked me to come work on them. Well, there's there's a sequel to this, but asked me to come work on them and stuff. And, you know, I was just off doing other things. And okay. I almost didn't want to have an opinion because I knew people who were working on them. And, you know, I didn't want to think they were bad. And I didn't want to be somebody protecting my particular era of it. Some of the comic stuff is really interesting. I mean, I got the feeling, you know, Furman you know, it was kind of, you know, channeling this one draft of Transformers that Jay and I wrote, Jay Bacall and I wrote, like, in a week in my apartment, that, that some of it ended up in the movie and then in the, in the season three. But um, the whole idea of, 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 I always thought of Cybertron and Unicron as kind of brothers. Now, that I, not that I was able to sell that idea to anybody other than Jay, but th- that's how I thought of it. Well, that's how it is in the comics now, where, where Cybertron is I, actually Primus's body. You wouldn't believe how much of the stuff in the comics was stuff that one way or another, you know, we'd either floated and it gotten shot, and down, shot down, or, you know, we just had, you know, we sort of had that idea, but didn't get it in there. But I, I remember reading that stuff thinking, boy, I mean, they were channeling, either somebody found a copy of The Secret of Cybertron, which is extremely unlikely, or they were just channeling what we were trying to do. Or we left enough DNA of what we really thought the the mythology was that somebody else picked up on it and ran with it. Any way around, that was really cool. Yeah, I mean, and I ran into a bunch of guys at BotCon who thinks of, of Beast Wars as being like the real version of Transformers. You know, they sort of, they'll tip their hat to G1 because it started it all and Bayformers for the sheer you know, excitement of it. And, and, you know, they like what IDW and various different comic iterations, but, but at the end of the day, beast wars is there. And, and part of it is, yeah, no matter who you are, you like what you grew up with. Well, that that's true, but uh, I'm, I'm younger than Neil and I actually grew up on beast wars, but being, being exposed to G1, I can, I can definitely say, yeah, this is better. Oh, well, we like that. <laughs> oh, I'm, okay. I'm sorry. It is. I'm sorry your product was better, Flint. <laughs> what? No, I mean, it is, you know, I'm happy. I like I, I like the fact that G1's better. But uh, um, <laughs> I've just noticed, I mean, you know, it's like if you grew up watching Armada, you know, that's probably the one you think's really great. And I, uh, I haven't. I don't think that's physically possible. Oh, really? Is it, is it a real dog log? Because I've uh, never it's, seen it's the worst. It's the worst CG I've seen. Yeah. Um, that's really Actually, cool. that's. Or Armada's one of the traditionally animated. Oh, am I confusing it with Energon? Yeah, you're confusing it with Energon. Oh God, Energon's a pile. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah I've hardly even heard about Energon. Uh, yeah, so I mean, it's it's really funny because I'm working with Chris Metzen on a uh, a series of um, a graphic novel series for uh, IDW now. That's sort of that's really pretty much IDW's continuity. But you know, we're sort of slipping G one. You know, I mean, you hire me, you're, you're going to get D one G one. You hire Chris Metz, and you're going to get bits and pieces of Warcraft and Starcraft in there. Okay. Yeah, it's just it's just how it works. Um, so uh, yeah, that's a really cool project. So I've been sort of relearning Transformers all over again. Cool. Uh, what do you think of uh, what do you think of you know they, they basically took uh, Springer in the comics and made him leader of this team called the Wreckers. What do you think of that? Well, you know, it's funny. Springer was always this kind of interesting character because for somebody, I mean, 
Do you have to understand from our point of view, you know, I had I had these these model sheets on my wall in the office. And for, you know, all but maybe 20 characters, you know, when, I, when I'm writing the character, I'm looking at the model sheet. I'm trying to remember the voice audition we wrote for the guy. And Springer was one of these characters who, yeah, I, he was, yeah, he was I, I look at him as kind of a weird Twilight Zone character because he became, he showed up before the movie in my, in my mind, not necessarily in the real world. And, and went into season three, but he was a character that was kind of different. Always was just a little bit different than everybody else. And, and it sort of makes sense in a funny way that, you know, they, they extracted that character and tried to do something with him. Okay. Um, you know, oh, IDW yeah, makes a lot about Cyclonus and the sweeps, too. Okay. Uh, which one's Rumble and which one's Frenzy? Oh yeah! You, oh shit! I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There, there, there is no trivia quiz. I will. Uh, I, will I'm, I will pass. I'm, I'm kidding. I, 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 I mean, you wouldn't really understand the degree. It's it's weird. I mean, like when you sort of sort of like when you create something, you develop a kind of amnesia for it. I don't know how to explain that in any other way. Any I, I know way. It, it, this. This is just a joke I do to deal all the time because. Yeah. Yeah, and I can't name the cassettes either, you know. I mean, you know, I know it's laser peak and you know, but I you know, Chris was embarrassing at that the other day, you know. I mean, because you look really stupid, you know, not knowing that stuff, but I mean it's just No, it's no that's that's more that's more of a joke I do to Neil. It's it's okay. It, okay. But uh Wow and Actually we keep we keep going down we keep going down the Transformers line, but what we're kinda of doing here is we're we're moving into other Transformers shows that He's never actually worked on. <laughs> so maybe, maybe we should never, kind of move back into stuff he's done. I have nothing against, and I have no real, real. To be honest with you, I have no real opinion of him, and in, in, in my opinion, would be worthless even if I had one. Because, yeah, you know, uh, you know, at different times, you know, different times in the history of a franchise, you have to go do different things, yeah. and and there are a lot of things that make sense at the time that seem stupid later. Sometimes, you know, you look at James Bond, and. You know, most people that were there at the time, you know, Sean Connery is their guy. And for probably everybody else, he's their second favorite guy. And, you know, it, you know, but Roger Moore, there's there's a whole bunch of people thinking you know, Roger Moore and the kind of goofy James Bonds are the real James Bond. You know? Well, uh, to me, Roger Moore was my James Bond, at least until they got to Moonraker. Before Moonraker, he was great. And then the Moonraker, it went way too far. Yeah. Well... Uh, and what's funny about it is that that Roger Moore, to me, just you know, he he you know he kept the seat warm for six movies really well. You know, they weren't the James Bond movies that changed my life when I was a kid, but they you know they were just fine. I mean, I was, I was like eight when Goldfinger came out, and you know, I, I was never the same after that. I mean, that was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life, and I didn't even notice that there were girls in it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, just, I was utterly oblivious. It was about. You know, it was about, you know, cars with machine guns built into them. And, and that was the level at which when I first approached Transformers, I thought, you know, it's the kids now. These these toys are just as cool as that was to me, you know, probably cooler. And and, you know, that was sort of, you know, where where my my emotional starting off point on it on that project. Um, yeah. And, you know, and you look at all the different bonds and, you know, there have been good ones and bad ones and and kind of OK ones. But, uh, you know. And then there's Lazenby. Well, yeah, well, George, but okay, he was a he was in some ways a big horrible mistake. In other <laughs> ways, it made a lot of sense. And there came this moment where you, you can't have Sean Connery anymore, so it's got to be somebody. And I think Roger Moore really benefited by the fact 
that this other guy came in there and got a complete wedgie, you know, got <laughs> out and and then Roger and Sean Connery came back for another movie and that wasn't so great. So, you know, things were kind of paved for Roger Moore and then he's doing, you know, Live and Let Die and he's got Paul McCartney right after the Beatles writing music for it and just everything worked right for him. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. So, uh, maybe we should, uh, since we pretty much exhausted Transformers for the, for the moment, uh, you did a lot of work with Gary Gygax, and yes. you mentioned you mentioned that briefly. Uh, what kind of stories do you have? That was at, at pretty much exactly the same. Well, I met Gary for Transformers, but you know, you know, I'd go over and work on Transformers, and then drive up to D and D and be working on you know games and interactive novels and stuff like that at night. Hmm. Yeah, it was all it was all part of one continuum. So, have you ever played Tomb of Horrors? I'm trying to remember which one's Tomb of Horrors. It's the one where each room has something that can kill you, and there's no hints, and basically you have to like have a really huge party or a really forgiving GM to get through it. Right. Let's say no. Let, I, I mean, I, I probably have, but I, I'm, I'm going to say no. Because to be honest with you, when we were up there, we very rarely played anything that existed. Okay. Yeah, we were always picking up our new, own new stuff. You know, there was there was no real reason to play a product. Okay, that's 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 a good reason. Yeah, you know what I mean. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, and and yeah, I sort of like never really really knew. Um, yeah, you know, what we were doing, even when we were doing you know actual stuff. You know, just because it all be bits and pieces. Because you know, you end up with uh, um, you know people like. Um, you know, Ernie'd be up there, or you know, Luke would be up there, and you'd just be doing stuff. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like it's hard to explain, but it wasn't like anybody was really, uh, um, you know, you know, playing actual product. Okay, let's see here. Uh, wow. So, uh, does that sound really the... weird to you? Or what, what? No, not really. I can understand that. It's a uh... So you did the uh, so you 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 did the uh, Chronicles of Riddick uh, video game. Yeah, I haven't played that yet. Yeah, well, it's it's a kind of an interesting game. I mean, it's first person, and okay. and what we did is we didn't have a copy of the movie script. You know, we found out later on that there really wasn't one at that point. Um, and so it was, uh, yeah, it was just Vin and uh, you know Dan John and. Uh, the Starbreeze guys and I just made up our own story. Pete wanted to. He was our producer. He was great. Cool, cool. It's another another guy with a great name, Vin Diesel. Yeah. Oh, Vin's been great. We worked on a lot of stuff with Vin. I mean, I mean, there's so many people with awesome names that you've been around. <laughs> and Vin Diesel is actually a pretty good voiceover artist. We were talking about him uh, on the a Iron weeks Gen- ago. On yeah, Gen- about the Iron yeah. Giant. Yeah, yeah. No, he he's really good, and he was really great with uh, Riddick and uh, with uh, what's a um, we did Wheelman with him, and uh, just it's another game we did with. Him. But yeah, he's always been great, and he's always fun to work with. And we, you know, we we're writing a Hannibal movie with him too. Mm. And now he's great. Cool. So, uh, so you have any Frank Miller stories? <laughs> yeah, like ten years of knowing Frank Miller. Yeah, well, I told you about how I met him. Yeah, it's was, just really, uh, it's just really awesome. I saw a picture of him around 1980, just uh-huh. a picture of him from around 1980, and uh, I know this is gonna come off really weird, but he looked so much like Ray Romano back then. 
Yeah, it's fun. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, he really, when I met him, he had really long hair, you know, and he, he looked uh, much more artisty. You know, I mean, Frank's one of these guys, you know, people have always thought was, you know, much, you know, weirder than he really is. He's really not weird at all. Um, but I mean, he had the real long hair artist, you know, artist kind of look. Um, but yeah, no, I've known Frank. Well, I met him that day with Transformers. I've known him. You know, I don't have a lot better friends than that, you know, and uh, for, I don't know, 25 years now. Went to, went, uh, the funniest, we went with him to, my wife and I went with him and Lynn to uh, Greece to research 300. And we were riding around, we were sailing around in a uh, academic cruise boat getting briefed on Greece for uh, four, four weeks. That was kind of fun. Oh, cool. It's uh, 300 was a rather fun movie, I must say. Yeah. Uh, Oh, it's what's really cool is that was when it was just a, uh, it was Comic, just a video yeah. game. I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, it was just no, it was, it was Thucydides, and he was just doing it as a graphic novel. But that was you know kind of when Frank had been you know super successful with Dark Knight and then with Sin City. Hmm. And it's kind of like you know he could have gone one of two ways. You know, I'm sure DC would have paid him a trillion dollars to uh, you know you know come and do Grim Lantern and you know you know, Hawkmorn and, you know, you know, kind of grim versions of all the uh, Justice League. And, and what he decided to do is, no, I'm going to do a graphic novel, The Battle of Thermopylae. I and, remember you know, because not, he, he, I remember reading he loved the hell out of that movie, 300 Spartans. Yes. And that, that's what I was telling you when we were doing the Transformer game. I mean, Transform, I mean, sorry, the Optimus death scene. Um, that's what he referenced. You know, we were just talking about the movies that really affected us as kids. And, yeah, and you know, and he never lost that idea. And, you know, it's pretty great when you can take, you know, you know Thucydides and turn it into, you know, turn it into a multi-trillion dollar uh, property. <laughs> and let's take a break. I am TFG1 Mike, and you should be listening to my very first podcast, the TFG1 Podcast. 24 episodes covering the entire U.S. run of the 1984 Transformers cartoon. I also have a few supplemental episodes and an interview with Stan Bush. I bring in guest hosts who will be full-time co-hosts in Steve Megatron and fan of the show now co-host Pecan Court Michael. So check out the TFG1 podcast. You can find it on iTunes and the web at www.geekcastradio.com. Transform and roll out. What are some of your favorite cartoons? Just watching ones that you aren't involved with. I want to. Uh, well, I mean, okay, because there were a lot I was, you know, a lot I was involved with doing games of, yeah. You because know, I spent most of the two thousands doing, you know, game scripts. Um, I thought that I, I mean I would say things I like now, or well, let's say let's go take it over the last decade. Yeah, well, we'll go one step before that. I think that you know when Paul Dini and, and Bruce Tim did Batman, I think they changed the the face of a certain certain kind of animated uh, entertainment. And that's, that's, uh, that was, yeah. What, oh yeah. I'm just that, saying that that's an undeniable fact that, you know, Bruce yeah, well, was there was a real, one of the, one of the best creative nights I ever spent. And, and I would basically did nothing is Frank and I were over at Trader Vic's one Friday night and Paul Dini, Bruce, Tim came in and they'd just been assigned to do the animated show. And so it's these four guys, actually three and a half and a half. You know, talking about Batman for four hours with tropical drinks, and it, it was amazing to listen to. It was just, <laughs> you know, it, it was really fascinating, and I think you know, it you know definitely colored what what came out afterwards. I mean, yeah, I, 
Paul, Paul Dini and Bruce Tim always, you know, had this idea they wanted to do, you know, if the Fleischers had done Batman. But I think it then became informed by more. Paul Dini's also a really brilliant guy. Yeah. I mean, and he, the, certain kind of animation, he could be the best animation writer out there. Yeah, and a lot of your stories about censorship and the, and, and the parent boards and all that, the, the stories that I've heard that Bruce Tim tells on his commentaries about how he was able to get past that with the Batman series are hilarious. Yes. Well, they, they were really... What's really funny is Batman came after the... the, the um, you know, the syndicated shows after the toy shows. So it had been way loosened up from, say, when, you know, when Paul and I were doing Mr. T back in the early 80s. I mean, that stuff was ridiculous. That, that's uh, true. But uh, the, did you ever hear the reason, the way that they were able to get real guns in that series? No. How did that? How did they do that? Uh, Bruce Tim argued, it was either Bruce Tim or Paul Dini. I think it was Bruce Tim himself that argued that uh, because Batman Returns just came out and everybody re- used real guns in that movie. To not have real guns in the cartoon would confuse children. <laughs> That's brilliant. Anyway, so all right, so that oh. was the first show that you know I kind of looked at and said, "Wow, this is really different." And bear in mind, there 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 are two things that you know that I just you know you can't really talk to me much about, and that is I don't tend to watch comedies. I just have no sense of humor, and um, um, uh, you know I don't tend to watch a lot of anime. Now, I did. I just got done writing an anime movie, uh, the Starship Troopers anime that's coming out from Sony in about a year. But um, oh, cool. I just hadn't watched a lot of that stuff because I just have trouble following it. I've, you know, I've watched all the big ones, but I'm certainly no expert in it. So the Starship Troopers uh, property, does it follow the uh, Highland book pretty closely? Um, well, the first book, no. I mean, the it what we did really... Uh, you know, is is number four Starship Trooper movie. So we're kind of done with Heinlein. There is stuff that in there that is extremely referential to Heinlein. Um, there's stuff in there that's kind of alluded to in the original Starship Troopers. But what we were really, you know, I think of it as kind of the Black Hawk Down version of Starship Troopers. Okay. I mean, I, I don't know that I can say any more about it than that, you know. No, but, that, that's fine. That's fine. I'm just, you know, I'm a big Heinlein uh, fanboy. Yeah, so. no, we we were just going for, uh, you know, a huge, massive battle, and and in our story, there's there's not a lot of uh, room for philosophical politics. There's just just a lot of stuff getting blasted. There's always philosophical politics. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we, we, uh, <laughs> I, though, I, you know, I, in the first draft I did, there was a lot of that stuff because I, I love, yeah, I love the book and I, I love Heinlein's, you know, vision of the universe and all that. But, but no, that did not, uh, that was not what that movie's about. Um, uh, let's see. So, so after, okay, after that, I think that, yeah, I love the whole DC run. I loved, uh, Every every iteration of um, Justice League, all the way up to Brave and Bold, which I think is in its own weird way. You see episodes of that that are just just wonderful. Yeah, I, it's, I, it's very well, it's very springy. Oh yeah, and it, what a what a brilliant thing to do. I mean, the same year you come out with Dark Knight, where you're pushing the character about as far to the dark and violent as you can. You're, you're screeching up to an R rating. And, and, you know, in that same year you come out with, yeah, it's, it's, it's Dick Sprang meets somebody really decided kind of eighties animation was really cool. Kind of, I mean, but I mean like pre transformers and stuff like that, like, you know, Thundar, you know, that era of, <laughs> of, of, of Ruby Spears and, and, you know, 
And 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 a lot oddly enough, some of the guys who worked on it actually worked on that stuff at the beginning of their careers. Um, and uh, it just you know I just love it. You know I mean I never thought I'd actually see Plastic Man and the Elongated Man fighting each other. Or dead man showing up as some kind of existential, you know, weird Lowski. I, you know, I it was, that was just great. I, I, you know, that show, you know, you know, everything has good and bad episodes, but that that show has just moments. Where I'm I'm on the floor. I, I and I'm thinking I can't believe DC would let the let people do this with their characters, and I think they're really great for it. Um, yeah, you know, Teen Titans. I think you know added up to a really brilliant package. Um, I kind of like uh, the, uh, this is this is just how you know pedestrian my things are. My daughter uh, really liked the new Scooby Doo's, and I was watching those with her, and I, yeah, I thought they were just great. Phineas and Ferb is kind of wonderful, you know. That's that's one of the, the few comedies that I actually watch. Okay. Uh, but uh, you know, I think they're they're just moments of that where you just it's you know you really realize it's just a whole door on animation, and you know, got opened and. You can really do wild stuff. Avatar, you know, I worked really early on that with, the, uh, with uh, when they were developing it. Um, we were really, we, yeah. They came to us. Uh, John Platten and I worked on that. They came to us right before they greenlit the show, and they said, "Look, you know, we got to know that we have a franchise here. That this can be video games. This can be card games." And so we did a franchise bible, and and. Sort of steered stuff. I mean, I do not want to overstate our contribution to it because, I mean, you know, it, it was, you know, the, the show was, the stuff was basically all there. But we were just kind of saying, okay, you really have to think about how you balance all these powers. You know, they need a vehicle. You know, I mean, we didn't suggest the flying thing with the arrow on his head. But uh, but we just said, you know, these guys have to get around on something and it's probably something alive. It's probably not a dragon. So, you know, figure it out. Um, that's actually really cool that you, you actually were involved in some way with Avatar The Last Airbender because that was, that's on my top, that's number one on my top 20 list. Oh yeah, but, but yeah, but I mean, think of my involvement is more, I mean, it was definitely a, a property development, you know, project that we did, but it was more me coming in as a game designer than me coming in as a writer. I understand that, but any involvement at all is you, you touched oh, yeah, something. No, that was a really cool show. Well. There's a woman who was doing it named Jenna Luttrell is one of the best executives I've ever encountered anywhere. I mean, she's really good and she really cared and it really became her life. And the creator guys were really smart guys, you know, obviously. I mean, it's, I'm, it's too bad the live action movie was such a banana peel, but. Uh, <laughs> You're being kind, kind. Typical case of, you know, M. Knight, however you pronounce his last name. Um, yeah, M. Knight, you know, uh. You know, not thinking he was somehow bigger than the material he was doing, and, and that's almost never true. And well, the thing is, he, it was a, it was one of his movies with no twist, and yeah, I agree, I agree. Yeah, it was no twist, and it wasn't even as good as the show. And yeah, you know, my daughter, who probably watched every episode of Avatar, you know, twelve times, you could barely make it through the movie, and I knew they were in trouble. And well, well, it was when I saw the movie. You have a lot of parents with really small children and the children were explaining the difference between the movie and the show during the movie that was the yep. whole audience in the theater these children explaining what the movie got wrong to these parents that really didn't care yeah that was just a, that was a huge banana peel and the real lesson there and you know and and what i will say in all fairness to, to michael bay and all that stuff is in all the important areas he got it right yeah, you don't have you don't have people that were G one fans explaining to a friend that wasn't a G one fan things that Bade got wrong. You didn't have that in Transformers. No, 
No, but I'll be honest with the last uh, Transformers, the new one. Yeah, I when I was looking at that battle on Cybertron, I felt like okay, I want to watch this movie. Okay, you know, yeah, I know you can go back to Shia LaBeouf, but you know, I, I want to watch the, I want to do the alt movie where we just keep going with this battle, and uh, uh, you know, because I love that, you know, the way that stuff was looking. You know, that's that's the movie I'd like to write for the next Transformers. You know, is I want to I want to take them out to space. And, and bring in Unicron and the... Oh, yeah, bringing in Unicron. I want to take him to the, yeah, you know, this nasty... Uh, I'd even bring back the, you know, something like the Quintessons and, you know, uh, you know Junkions, take a ride by that. Oh, plant, I, I, got, I got a serious question for you, Flint. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A friend of Neil's and ours is, uh, always contends to us that uh, the scene where Rekgar shows up... Oh, no. ...to... Uh, Battle the Autobots. That this was supposed to create a real, true sense of terror and fear in the audience. That Rekgar was a real and true threat that was going to kill them. Well, <laughs> I, I think there's like one, you know, sort of establishing shot where something appears. You know, where you're kind of trying to make it look scary, and then you realize these guys are just complete and utter goofballs. <laughs> uh, you know, so so that's both true and untrue i think pretty quickly about the time you have eric idol playing a character you, you're really not going for the juggler and weird al playing in the background yeah weird al playing in the no i mean i just love the idea of those characters and and uh and you know that the whole idea of a junk planet a planet yeah i, I, like I thought that was actually great i love planet junk i love the idea i love the fact that they talk tv you know 5.99 or your money yeah. back I was, I was working on a game development that, you know, had had some heavy stuff on Junkion, and it's too bad that never, that never happened. I would you love because uh, Junkion is something I'd go back and explore. Definitely Unicron. Um, uh, you know, and then just other planets. Where, where was that? What was the name of that planet they went to with the lizard guy? It's kind of like the Star Wars bar of planets. Yeah, I want to have Transformer fight a giant lizard. You know, I don't know why, but, I mean, it just seems like a good thing to do. Well, you know what really... You know, Michael Bay had had this great idea. He was going to introduce a Decepticon that whose alt form was a, an aircraft carrier, and he kept on talking about, "Oh, maybe the next movie, or oh, maybe the next movie." Still, never. Why not? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm I, I'm sure they could do it. Yeah, you'd love to see an aircraft carrier, but I want to see that thing flying around in space with you know, like fifty star screams flying off of it. <laughs> Yeah, no. awesome. Yeah, the yeah the seekers. Yeah, yeah, because what it, what he did in the most recent movie that I think was a good thing about the movie. I mean, whatever quibbles we may have, is all of a sudden you know the Decepticons were talking and had personalities, and I felt like you know I felt like it was sort of he was sort of getting comfortable with it and kind of getting what was fun about the animated series, and, you know, and there was there wasn't any resistance to it. Well, yeah, but the uh, one thing I've always heard is, you know, they made Megatron a hobo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, homeless Megatron, which is, yeah, I mean, that character, you always love seeing indignities. Heavy heaped on that character. I mean. <laughs> yeah, that, that uh, goes all the way back to G1. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, I mean, was, look, my favorite moment of, of the first Transformer movie was uh, Megatron, wait, I still live. And Starscream saying something like, Lenadette? You know, I'm kicking him out the window. I mean, that's you know, that's how I always like to see Megatron. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it's uh, a lot of great dialogue in in that movie. You know, uh, I'll rip out her optics. Uh. Oh, you know, you know what's funny is you, you know 
that was really the the truth is that was really team effort. I mean, there was, you know, we went, you know, there's so many, in a good way, there were so many requirements for that movie. I mean, think of how many characters we had to have in there, either kill or introduce. Everybody had to have an arc. You had to go to all these different places. I mean, there were, that was a lot of stuff to, to pull off in one movie. And, and, and if you look at it from that point of view, it's kind of amazing that you can even follow it at all. But there is incrementally a lot of fun stuff in there. I mean, I was rewatching it. The other thing I was really struck by when I rewatched it was just how 80s it was. I mean, it really. <laughs> oh, it, yeah. It, you know, it is just of its time. I mean, you know, you know, Transformers was a huge thing in the 80s. And that movie from all the way to, from the arena rock to just the whole feel of the movie was the 80s. And somehow right now, the 80s just don't look so bad. <laughs> It's just it was just a better time. I, I got one yeah, more question a... about the the movie. Uh, this is my last question for the movie. Neil might have more. Uh, the cursing. Oh. oh, there was one curse word in there, and that was in there to get it a uh, a PG rating because we just figured we couldn't go out with an animated uh, G G rated movie. I don't even know if it was ever actually written down in the script. I don't remember putting it there. But okay. I remember I remember the rationale for it because I said, "Why, why are these guys? Why are these guys? Uh, you know, swearing? What, what's happening here?" Well, so, it was yeah. actually it was actually two. One one was uh, when the Ultra Magnus is trying to open the Matrix. He says, "Open, damn it!" And uh, the second was but, when the Spike was on the ship being eaten by Unicron, and he says, "Oh shit!" Yeah, right. Oh yeah, the damn it! Yeah, yeah. I guess I, I don't even consider that a curse. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yes, you're right. There's the damn it. What I what I found like really bizarre when I was a kid was that I thought the PG rating was from all the violence. I you have uh, Ironhide getting his head blown off basically, and I find out that it's no, it's the swearing. I'm like really, and nowadays it would be like a well, hard R. Yeah, yeah. part of the '80s that except in children's television, you see there were a lot of, of political activists involved in children's television. But everywhere else, the 80s, you know, that, that was Reagan. You know, I mean, we were tired of being wimps and wieners in the 70s. You know, we were kind of done with Jimmy Carter. <laughs> and, um, and so it was very much about, uh, um, yeah, you know, the, just, the, the kind of tough guy stuff and that kind of violence was okay. It was very American slash Japanese in the sense that, you know, there's you know nothing even remotely resembling sex in there, but you know the, you know all the violence you need is fine with us, right until you know real people's internal organs start flying around. But other than that, you know you can do whatever you want to do a robot. That's definitely true. Neil, you got any more questions? Uh, yeah, there's one voice actor who always sticks out when I think of the Sunbow era. And that would be Chris Lotta. Could you tell us about uh, him? Percent, totally agree. <laughs> and that's these other guys weren't great. But Chris Lotta was kind of the thing, you know, Sunbow, you know, that Sunbow had that nobody else did. You know, I mean, you know, the other guys were all like, you know, pros in the industry and all that. And Chris was a stand-up comedian that uh, I think Joe saw in some, you know, in some club in, you know, in Manhattan. And, you know, heard the voice and said, we got to get this guy. And Chris was great. I had a lot of adventures with Chris. You know what's really great is his daughter, Abby, who you ought to interview. She's on... Uh, She's on my Facebook uh, page. Her name is Abby Collins. Mm. So that was Chris's other identity. Chris was also Chris Collins. 
Yes. I always knew him as Chris Lotta, but he was Chris Collins. And Abby, Abby is, is a budding voice actor who showed up at BotCon, read with the rest of the actors. I wasn't there and didn't see it. You know, she just she was on my Facebook page. And I contacted the BotCon guys and I said, look, you got to get her there. I've, I've never met her, but seems like a really nice girl and you got to get her there. And uh, they did. She read with the rest of the guys and the voice actors were telling me, yeah, you know, at a, at a moment when, you know, they, they didn't have to say this. They were saying, you know, she's really good. <laughs> I mean, she's like really good. And you know, somehow she got the uh, Chris Jean because what Chris brought to the shows was a kind of unique madness and edge because Chris was one of the edgiest, rawest human beings I've ever encountered in my life. Um, and, 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 and the stuff you hear in there is like, like real. It's not, it's not a guy making a silly voice. I mean, at one level it is, but I mean, Chris is, Chris was out there. He was really out there. As a matter of fact, one summer I had to bail him out of jail twice in order to get him to recording sessions on time. It tells you something. It was never clear to me what he was ever in there for, but I just get these calls at three o'clock in the morning. Hey, can you come down to the North Hollywood? Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, and I remember thinking, I mean, if if he's calling me, I mean, you know, you know, I mean, how you know how depraved do his friends have to be if he's calling me to be the responsible adult? But sure enough, I'd show up there. <laughs> wow. Um, so yeah, no, he he was great, and and I really miss the guy. And it, it's really kind of too bad he didn't you know live long enough to see all this stuff because you know I yeah I don't know that any of us uh, really expected. Uh, I mean, I don't think it occurred to anybody you know you know sitting there in nineteen eighty five or eighty six that I was going to be talking twenty five years later to guys on well certainly not on the internet you know on the internet about about. Transformers. I mean, we thought we were just doing really ephemeral stuff. And what I've discovered is most of the stuff that really sticks with people, the, the guys who did it originally, that's what they thought they were doing. I was reading Keith Richards' autobiography, and he didn't write Satisfaction thinking that, oh, this is the anthem for a generation that's going to be played, you know, decades later when he was doing Sympathy for the Devil. He was thinking, oh, yeah, this will be really big in the Vietnam War, and then they'll be putting it in black ops in, in 30 years. You know, they thought they were doing a song for an album that, you know, would be, you know, gone in, uh, you know, gone in three months. And that's what we always thought about Transformers. You know, wow. it never occurred to us that we, you know, we'd be talking about this stuff now. And wow. usually about the time you do something where you think, you know, you think, oh, yeah, this is really one for the agents to be really great. It, it inevitably ends up, you know, just really sucking. That's usually how it ends up. But uh, we were talking, well, getting back to G.I. Joe just for a second, we were talking about uh, uh, the season of G.I. Joe that you weren't really on. Uh, what's, what, what was it, season? There were only two seasons of G.I. Joe. The second well, season with... G.I. Joe had three seasons. I think both Transformers oh, and G.I. Joe had three. Well, well anyway, that, that extra season... I see, but I think that's true. Yeah, that last season, uh, that's where that's where the... The Megatron and Starscream dynamic went to it went to Serpentor and Cobra Commander. They became the new uh, uh, vitriolic buddies. Well, yeah, because you got dual Chris villain leaders, guys, you know. Yeah, yeah. Chris was both uh, Starscream and uh, Cobra Commander. Yeah, Sir and Pentor he was also was... Old Snake in Transformers, which yeah. was Cobra Commander. I know. <laughs> then he was decomposed and uh, a couple other characters in the Humanoids. And uh, he did a lot of a lot of different characters. I think you know over the whole run. Yeah, 
Oh no, he was it, all of the dreadnoughts. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, because I mean, yeah, yeah. When I think of going to recording sessions, it seems like he was always there. I mean, it was great at BotCon this year. Did, did you see these guys again? You know, he's sitting around talking to Duke again. <laughs> oh man, Perceptor, you're here. Uh, you know, I mean, there were there were two seconds I was on this panel with the voice actors. There were two seconds while I was sitting up there on the panel, and it was 1985 again. You know, I'm just hearing these voices. We're talking about the same stuff we we're talking about in 1985, and it's like, oh, this it's, it's kind of great. Yeah, the, you, yeah. The third season of GI Joe's, and you know, I know nothing about. Um, yeah. No, I just know the first season. And, and sort of a lot of the stuff I was doing the first season stretched into the second season. So I'm probably reasonably conversant in that, but that's for the whole. Cool. So, anyway, did we have anything else, Ben? Uh, actually, no. It's. Uh, yeah. I think we got kind of kind of caught like deers in the headlights. You we were like, oh my God, we have a big star on here. <laughs> right, so, so, this has been kind of one of the clunkier shows, but I think it's been a lot of fun. No, I mean, yeah, listen, it's, you're really you fun to like, have fun. Yeah. If you want to redo it or like call me up with other you know questions you have or something, feel free to do it. I'm I'm just sitting here trying to hit a deadline and you know love the diversion. So uh, you know I mean yeah, I mean don't worry about it. I, yeah, no, I'm sorry if I if I've been uh, a difficult interview, but I uh, no no you know, no, you're not difficult at all. It's just that we're sort of starstruck right now. It's uh, yeah, no, it's uh, well that's not true. We've had famous people before. I, I guess yeah. because Transformers and GI Joe have been a big part of both of our childhoods. It's uh, you know it's I, I think yeah. I knew how to say and knowing is half the battle. Before oh, I no. my phone number. Uh, no, it's really funny. Is uh, is I mean that's what it's like doing the doing the recording sessions. I mean you know I mean you know guys like Leonard Nimoy coming in and you know recording. It's like wow, Mr. Spock's here. Oddly oh. enough, I saw him gym about a week ago. Um, oh, uh, that reminds me, what was Orson Welles like? Oh, Orson Welles is great. Okay, you know what's really funny about Orson Welles is that. There'd been this really nasty audio tape going around with every voice recording guy. Remember, there's no internet back then. Right. I mean, you know, just imagine this world. So, was so, it the uh, Yeah, the voice, voice, you know, voice recording guys would exchange tapes, and there was this one recording with Orson Welles just giving some engineer a wedgie. You know, the guy was being kind of dumb, and you know, I, and, and I think ultimately Orson Welles was either not in a good mood. Or he felt this guy had been really disrespectful, and uh, and so everybody was really afraid when Orson Welles came in. That like, oh no, we're gonna rip the new one, or you know, and so they were kind of terrified. There was very little adult supervision. I can't remember. I think I think Joe and Tom were there, but I'm not sure. But it was a lot of it was. I remember Hildy and I were so. Hildy was the person who held the uh, the West Coast office together for Sunbow. Uh, Carol Weitzman held the sort of whole thing together. She was she was probably the best like producer I've ever encountered. But anyway, um, and uh, Hildy and I were sitting there and when Orson Welles came in, you know, he was, he, he was a big guy. I mean, I'm six, five and, and he was probably as tall as I am, but he weighed like 450 pounds. I mean, he, he looked like Unicron. He said, he said, I hear I've been playing a whole planet. And uh, <laughs> I thought, yeah, you kind of look like one too. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, um, he uh, he sat down. He was he was great. He was trying. You could hear he was kind of wheezing. You know, he'd come in in a in a 
uh, wheelchair, but when he had to get up, I don't think the wheelchair got through the door at Wally Burr Studios. Um, so he, you know, he had to kind of like walk to his chair, which he was able to do. But I mean, you know, and it, you know, as he had this French manager saying, "Oh, you know, he's he needs and that," you know, it's like guy, you know, Walter Payton couldn't walk on those, you know, uh, uh, you know, with four hundred fifty pounds carrying him, I and mean, you know, knees aren't made to sustain that. Anyway, uh, but he he was just great. He got the character. He seemed to really get into it. You know, I, we, we had a little warm-up time, and I was asking him about the Mercury Theater, and he could not have been more. I was Because I was really into old radio shows at that point. Still mm. And uh, yeah, we were talking about that, you know. And, you know, and, and what was really kind of strange about it, and, and I mean, you know, the obviousness of this didn't, didn't strike me at the time, but it was kind of exactly like what we were doing. I mean, we had this troupe of actors that went through all these different shows we did. And, you know, and they got to be really good together. Yeah. And, you know, that's what he was talking about was, you know, he had, he had kind of his troop of actors and they were, you know, like Joseph Cotton was in a bunch of his radio shows and then was in, you know, Citizen Kane. And, and from Orson Welles's point of view, you know, it wasn't like this wildly new experience. He hadn't directed a movie before. We'd certainly directed all these actors and plays and, you know, on radio shows and probably TV stuff. And, you know, so, so, you know, the, the task of making Citizen Kane was really just about making Citizen Kane. It wasn't wrangling a bunch of actors or anything like that. This, this was his family, basically. Hmm. So it's really interesting. And, and I hadn't really realized at the time, you know, that that's exactly what, what our life was at, uh, you know, at Sunbow. Cool. You know, that was, that was kind of cool. So it was cool to have Leonard Nimoy there. It was cool to have, uh, well, and then, oh, yeah, with Orson Welles. Then he died like a week later. I mean, literally a week later. Wow. I bet that was haunting. Yeah, it was. It was, it was kind of creepy to think, yeah, wow, the real Arsene Wells is here. Um, I think Leonard Malton loses sleep at night thinking about Transformers being Orson Welles' literally his last project ever. Oh, yeah. Well, I worked on uh, Jimmy Stewart's <laughs> last project ever, too. I wrote Five Goes West. You know, it was American Tale, too. Oh, that's right. That was, wow. uh, and, and Jimmy Stewart, I mean, he lived a long time afterwards. It wasn't like he died the following week, but. Yeah. Um, so so I, I know with uh, American Tale too. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Bluth had very little involvement. Uh, zero that I know of. None. It was oh, so you didn't. By okay. Simon Falls and Phil Nibbling. Okay, so okay, so okay. I was just really curious about that because I've always heard that Bluth had no involvement with all of the sequels to his work. And yeah, no, he had. I, I mean, I never encountered him whatsoever on the project at all. Okay. I, so I don't believe he had anything to do with it. I, I could I could be wrong. I mean, I, I don't want to assume me or something if I if I'm wrong, but I, I I have no recollection of of anything of Don Bluth. Okay. Directed by the by Simon and uh, Phil, really good guys who are uh, still doing stuff. Okay. All right. It's just it's, you know Bluth's another one of our heroes here. That's that's all. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I mean, what's really funny is I just saw they have Space Ace now out as an iPad app. That's kind of yeah. Cool. Wow. I always preferred, I always preferred, uh, what is it, the... Dragon's Lair? Yeah, I always preferred Dragon's Lair over Yeah, Dragon's Lair and Space Age. Dragon's Lair. Yeah, the princess, the princess was amazing in Dragon's Lair. It was a really early Disney when I'm I'm doing an interview here. Uh, Sorry, my daughter just came back. Um, But, uh, yeah, and and then he he went up and did, like, Fern Gully, and did he do Secret of Nim? Yes, he did. Yeah, it was kind of a deceptively good movie too, you know. And no, Don Bluth did some really good stuff, I, I, you know. And I and I never, 
even when I was writing features, I always felt like, you know, he was walking out of the room as I was walking in or something. I, but I never actually encountered him. I worked with a lot of people who worked with him. I kind of worked around a lot of projects he was doing, but I never actually met him. Is he still alive? I believe so. Yeah, yeah no, I know. You know, that was, that was... Uh, way up there. But I think that a lot of the production team on Five All was Don Bluestein. Oh, cool, cool. It's maybe you're like matter and antimatter. You both can't exist in the same room. Yeah, exactly. Well, there are just people like that. You know, there are people every time you run into them, every time turning around, and then there are people who, uh, who uh, you, you know, you sort of inexplicably never meet. It's sort of like how Superman and Clark Kent aren't in the same room together. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, no. Oh, we were talking about just celebrities. I mean, like you know, when I met. Uh, the guy who really struck me the most doing Transformers was Robert Stack, oddly enough. Ooh, I, that's the one I want to ask you about next, actually. Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, like, you know, if, if I had been really good and I could stay up late, my mother would let me watch The Untouchables, which was, you know, kind of like The Sopranos of its, its day. And and Robert Stack, I thought, was just the greatest thing in the world. So, you know, we're doing the, we're doing the recording. He's playing Ultra Magnus, you know, and it's like, yeah, yeah it's like, you know, wow, Robert Stack's here. And um, he could not have been more humble. Bear in mind, this guy's like the heir to you know Occidental Petroleum or something. It's not like he was on welfare and had to do this for a living. And um, and and was really kind of you know he said you know I've never done voiceover this before and he's a little nervous about it. We walked him through it, and then after that, he did a show called Unsolved Mysteries. That's a, that's where I grew up with him. Yeah, and he was the best voiceover guy ever. Remember how creepy it was? You know, he had this. He simultaneously had this, you know, voice that sounded sounded like, you know, you know, cosmic judgment and, and, you know, like came out of the bottom of the grave. And it was like simultaneously perfect narration and also just slightly archaic. It was I, and, he, I, and, he, and he shows up almost like almost almost like a Rod Serling esque character in yes. that trench coat and at that foggy at that foggy street corner. Yes. Yeah, yes, remember he was always. Oh, I just love that character. He was just great. So he was a lot of fun. And then all I remember, Judd Nelson was just. You know, we we're talking. He was a big Miami uh, Miami Dolphins fan. Yeah, yeah uh, I was. Did they do the uh, the what's it called club around that time? Yes, he was. He was a real Breakfast Club. He yeah. was. He was a guy. One of the what was called the Brat Pack. And to sort yeah. of understand that era of the 80s. And I think the Brat Pack was really kind of coming to an end then. But if I, it's very possible I'm wrong. But it was like him, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, James Spader, uh, Andrew McCarthy, Rob Lowe. Um, oh, what's her name? Uh, oh, you know, Bruce Willis's wife. Uh, did I already say her? Um, Demi Moore? Yeah, I think Demi Moore. You know, it's like that was um, uh, Emilio Estevez. You know, maybe a little bit Charlie Sheen. He was obviously still around. Um, yeah. But that, yeah, you know, they were the Brad Pack, and they were, uh, um, you know, and so he was. Yeah, he was. He was kind of a cool thing to have roll in there. That was, that was fun. Well, yeah. one thing we've we've always been talking about on this show is that uh, there are certain other cartoons that they they get celebrity voices into the studio, and then. The the person directing the actor doesn't doesn't really do a good job with them, and then it just falls flat. You don't really know, you don't really understand why this person is even in this show. When you right. guys brought all those all those actors into Transformers, 
they all fit the roles very well. I was very impressed with that. Yeah, actually. You know, I think a lot of that was, you know, I think probably Joe, Joe Bacall. Yeah. He yeah. seemed to be kind of the most sort of, you know, savvy with that stuff. And I, I could be totally wrong and be, you know, it could have been Wally Burr or Tom Griffin, but yeah. Yeah. The thing is you, you hear Judd Nelson do, uh, do hot rod and you think uh, he was always a voice actor. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. He did a really great job. And the, that, that, that's the amazing thing. Everywhere else that you hear a big-name celebrity doing a voice, and it's a gimmick. I mean, uh, a yeah. perfect example of this is I love Dan Aykroyd. Don't get me wrong. I love Dan Aykroyd. He's terrible as Yogi Bear. <laughs> oh, that's right. He did play Yogi Bear. It's funny. I did, I did and had only tangential you know, relations with, with Dan Aykroyd. I did the Ghostbusters game a couple years ago. That was a really fun project because it also – that was another truly '80s project, and that was also, you know what, the Ghostbusters video game. I got it. I got to say, that's the third movie for me. Thank you. Well, yeah, what we were trying to be was we were trying to be the second movie that should have been, and because yeah, we you know we weren't loving the second movie, but uh, you know, and and that that was the idea, and it was kind of cool. It interested them in doing another movie. And what I loved about the the game was basically you're playing this guy who's the new recruit. And the in the Ghostbusters characters in the movies, you know they're lovable, but they're kind of assholes. And you're the new guy, and they're going to treat you like shit. And that's what I loved about it because it's totally. Oh yeah, yeah, no, that it's was like, let's get going, Scooter. Yeah, that was yeah, that was the whole idea. You know, and the whole idea was, uh, you know, we want yeah, you you were joining a frat. You know, I, I mean, I yeah. looked at it as uh, and and a lot of the best of that stuff, to be honest with you, John Platten wrote, not me, but I mean. That was the whole idea was, uh, um, you know, you get in there and and you'd feel like you were the new guy in the frat and, you, and you know, you're being treated like a squid. And, you know, I, yeah, that was fun. And I thought that, the, you know, we used the environments really well. The, you know, the developer did a really good job. It was Terminal Reality, I think, did that. And they did a really good job with it. Um, that was a fun project. But it was interesting about it. It was also very 80s. Yeah, and I loved it. And you know, going back to uh, you know Dan Aykroyd, terrible as Yogi Bear, but I, I, you know, how much of it was Dan and how much of it was the director, I don't know. But on the flip of the coin, Justin Timberlake was a frighteningly good boo boo. Yeah, it's like he was possessed by the ghost of Don Messick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Yeah, well, who also did stuff with us? Oh yeah, and and it's like it's like you know that the people who were casting it picked Justin Timberlake just to bring in his name, and then all of a sudden he actually had it in him. It's like, hello. Yeah, exactly. Well, look, Justin Timberlake was like mesmerizingly great in um, Social Network. That's true. Yes, but yeah, oh. it's uh, it's it's awesome. You know, like I said, the Ghostbusters game was great it, it's one of my favorite games of that year actually well yeah i i really felt that it came out well i mean it, it was tricky to figure out what the, you know a, enough gameplay but yeah i was very happy i, I felt like we really captured the mood of it and, you know, it's, it's, and what's interesting about writing that script was the first draft they didn't think they'd have bill murray you know i i mean there was just you know i, I mean apparently uh, now i may be getting garbled version of the story so you know take it for what it's worth but Apparently, Bill Murray just kind of takes off and doesn't tell anybody but his agent where he is. And so, you know, if you don't happen to, and then he shows up the day of a of a shoot and does what he does, and then he takes off. <laughs> and so, we we had to write the first draft, you know, free of Bill Murray. And then apparently, he ran into either Harold Ramis or Dan Aykroyd at a party 
and said, hey, what's this about the game? I want, I want in. And so <laughs> then we went in and wrote another draft, and sure enough, Bill Murray's in the game. And like I said, it was, it was perfect. It, I never played a game that was perfect before. Everything was perfect. It was. Uh, they even in the game they actually threw in the uh, the uh, the winning screen from the Atari Ghostbusters game on a computer yeah. screen. Oh no, these guys are really into it. And the producer in the beginning, he was not the producer at the end, but um, and all these guys were good, you know. And I, I don't mean to single them out for any other reason. This guy named Pete Wannett. And Pete Wannett was a guy we also worked with on Riddick. And and when, you know, the original thing on Riddick was, you know, Pete explaining they didn't have a script. And, you know, he said, okay, so what we're going to do, there's a reference in Pitch Black to a place called Butcher Bay. And we're going to set it there. And, and I figured out the story. Okay, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the story. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, great. Well, I don't have much to figure out the story. Um, and, and he said, uh, okay, first scene. Riddick's captured, and he's taken to Butcher Bay. And I said, yeah, okay, good. Last scene, Riddick escapes from Butcher Bay, and you figure out the middle stuff. Um, so that was that was the pitch on uh, Riddick. <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a bad pitch. It's, I, mean, uh, I mean, who would have thought that Pitch Black would take off the way it did, you know, the whole Riddick thing to, yeah. took off the way it did, because Pitch Black was a, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't exactly call it, low low budget but it wasn't exactly like a screaming blockbuster in production no but but vin really has has a presence you know in I mean, a name you know, you know he was really well even then he did yeah well he's a cool name but but then he did not have a famous particularly famous name but there's just something about the guy I, his whole he realized his whole career started as a director wow really I did not know that. He did a film that uh, you know that he personally financed that went to a film festival. I did not it, it tells that. you it explains a lot of stuff. And Steven Spielberg saw it and said, you know, look, I'll hire you as a director. You're really good. But frankly, it had been acted in it too. You know, I, you're you're perfect for a character I have in this World War II movie I'm doing, which was of course Private Ryan. And uh, so Vin played that. Everybody noticed him. And then it's like, okay, you're a hundred fifty thousand dollar first time director job, or we got the twenty million dollar acting job. Now you know, take your pick. Um, <laughs> And, you know, he just decided to go with the $20 million actor job. And that kind of became his career. But, you know, it, it, you know, well, the ball bounces slightly differently. And he's Vin Diesel director right now. He's an extremely intelligent guy. And he's, he's also re- he's also a big D&D player. Hardcore. No, I, OK, like really hardcore. Like I, I'm sitting in his office. I mean, the first night I met him, it was the night we were recording Riddick. And and John Platten had to leave early. Um so I'm just sitting, you know, I, I you know, we, I mean, what, well, you know, I'm expecting to meet. What I'm expecting to meet is, is you know, something out of Fast and Furious, right? You know, I'm expecting, you know, twelve cars to come up and shows up <laughs> in this pocket stadium. Today so shows up with this really, you know, very beautiful woman, who it turns out is his sister. And you know, if you looked at him, you think he's the bouncer and she's the superstar, but that didn't work that way. <laughs> and uh, um, and she runs his company. She's 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 also really smart. I mean, they they got like the genius family. And, and so anyway, he shows up and he's nothing like that. He's this soft-spoken, really kind of fun, good guy. And I don't know how it happened, but probably 15 minutes in after we'd gone through the script and while we're waiting for the um, the guys and you know, the, the engineers are blowing into the microphones and you know all that, um, he starts talking about his D&D character. Yeah, um, and uh, 
and I'm realizing, you know, uh, you know that you know, I worked with TSR for you know, I don't know 15 years. I mean, starting with Gary, and then later on, my sister bought TSR. Um, and I'm sitting there, you know, talking to this guy, and I realized this guy, this guy's like hardcore. I mean, I've seen as hardcore at TSR, but not harder. And really, and then he brought out his map one time, you know, months, maybe years later. And it was like the map of the world he'd created in high school. He and his buddies. Still had his, his uh, game buddies playing there. And it was, it was just great. Cool. It's, it seems like yeah. it seems like uh, that just keeps on coming back to you, the, uh, the yeah. uh, D&D thing. It just keeps on coming back. I, I will tell you what's really well. Yeah, I just got done doing a project at, at Blizzard. You know, a uh, uh, not unrelated to D and D project. Um, y- yes, yeah. It, 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 what's really funny? Well, I'll tell you what's even funnier is that that whole period of my life from the eighties is you know has just sort of resurfaced. I mean, Transformers has resurfaced. I've been trying to you know get a project. Uh, you know, working on a project about Gary Gygax. But I created role-playing games. Um, uh, I guess D and D's resurfaced, and you know, in all sorts of different forms. The Agent Thirteen books that Dave Marconi and I wrote right in that period are being re-released, and the the movie was optioned. It's, it's like, yeah, the mid '80s. It's like you plant these seeds somewhere really early in your career, and they all of a sudden pop up again. You know, twenty-five years later. Cool. I don't want to say late in my career because I, you know, you always feel like you're just getting started. But um, <laughs> I think you have plenty of career left. Plenty. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like mid-career, all these things have come back up, and there's, you know, I go in and meet with these executives, and they're like hardline trans. I, I, I met in with, met with a guy, the transmedia guy over at uh, Bad Robot, and he was like a hardcore Transformers fan, you know. <laughs> you know no, they're they're bad the conversation You and I are having what? You can tell they're bad robots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it should have been obvious, but I mean, <laughs> that's what's funny about it is that is that all those guys grow up and you realize, oh yeah, I was doing the stuff. I mean, this, yeah, this would be very much like me meeting Robert Stack or the guys that did, you know, the Batman TV shows or the guys that did James Bond or you know all that stuff or the Avengers or something. When I was a kid, now okay, now I see what that's like. But cool. yeah, it's so, funny. So now you are the architect of people's childhoods. Yeah, I know that's uh, yeah, that's a and that's a really irresponsible thing for American culture to do. But um, <laughs> yeah, you realize that I mean, it's amazing how much you know. But yeah, between all the Sunbow stuff and the other cartoon stuff and Fievel and and uh, you know all the stuff of that period, you know, because after that, you know, I you know because you know ga- I wouldn't say games were my first love, but they were the medium that became really interesting to me in the in the '90s and really you know from then on. Um, but, uh, you know, all that 80s stuff, yeah, it's coming back now. And I don't know whether then the, my 90s stuff's going to come back to me in 10 years. I don't know if it works that way, but we'll see. I think the 80s as an era just has this sort of connection and feel that no other... The 90s tried too hard to be too many different things. I mean, when you think of the 80s, you, you think you think of awesome, you know, hair metal and... Uh, yes, and, yes. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, and awesome Toei animation... Oh, and all the all the Schwarzenegger movies and all yeah, yeah. coming back to him too. Yeah, all the Schwarzenegger and, 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 movies and and yeah, that's and a blown and yeah, it's it, it in in the nineties is what uh, garage bands from Seattle? No, 
nineties no. was the internet. You know it, what? It, what it was. A lot of stuff happened, and and we may not have another period like the eighties again. Because you know, the, what was fascinating about the eighties too is in media, it was always before that there'd been three networks. You know, and 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 there'd been were seven studios, and there were you know three televisions. Yeah, three television stations, and then wherever you were, you'd have you know you had like WGN, and then you had PBS, and that was it. You know that, and and the only recorded medium you had, you had the VHS tapes. DVDs came out right around the time we were doing this stuff, but before that, the only you know recorded medium you had was was you know records, and 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 then cable came out, computers came flying out right in that early period of the eighties. So the world just had bloomed with all this cool new stuff. And so it was really exciting. And you're right. You had the hair bands. You had Ronald Reagan. You had the end of the Cold War. Um, yeah, I mean, you had, you know, the recession ended and, you know, and it sort of headed into boom times. Uh, you had all the sort of Schwarzenegger movies and, and the last of the Star Wars and the Indiana Jones movies and Blade Runner. I mean, you know, when I do games now, you'd be amazed how many games that are sitting in the at the at, at the core of the consciousness of the, of the guys working on them are coming from eighties movies. It's amazing how how potent an era that was. And and yeah. I yeah, yeah and I, I guess we knew it at the time. But you always think that whatever you know whatever time you're living in is just kind of normal. Yeah. You know, but looking back, yeah, the nineties were all about check out my website. I mean, really, if you wanted to get down to it. And you're right, the the brooding grunge guys that are smoking shotguns in their garage and yeah and stuff like that. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it just didn't have the same, you know, you had the Clinton administration, you had stained dresses and OJ murders and stuff like that. You know, it just it wasn't the same in the 2000s. We're just, we're, you know, the, the teens where we are right now is really just about new tech. You know, okay, I've got an iPad, an iPhone and a Mac and we're sitting here talking on Skype and, you know, there's all that, but it, there's not this burst of artistic stuff. What there is is the technological capability frankly, to realize the visions of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I mean, look at the summer's movies. I think Harry Potter was the 80s, started in the 80s. Is that right? No, it started in the 90s, I think. Uh, that it's late? A, it's a, what, what, with Harry Potter, it's a, if I remember J.K. Rowling, the, the writer, uh, wrote those while she was still homeless, I think. it's. Let me... Yeah, let's, I, I was just Googling it myself. Because, yeah, I mean, it seemed to me... Oh, you are correct. Wait, uh, let's see. Uh, 1997. Wow, that's late. No, that had to be the first movie. Uh, no, it's that books. Wow, you're right. Since 30 June, the release of first novel, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Wow, 1997. You are correct. Man, that happened fast. That I just mean, we're happened. Done with the last movie, and it's only 2011. Wow. Yeah, when's that second animated Transformers you movie are, coming out? You anyways, are so correct. What, I'm sorry. What did you say? Yeah, when's that second animated Transformers movie coming out? Anyways. Yeah, right. That'll be flying right out. Uh, no, I mean, <laughs> I think you know. I, I mean, yeah, you know, frankly, I mean, you look if you count CG. I mean, we are the new ones basically are animated movies. Well, that's yeah. that's true, but you know, how else are we going to do the giant robots animatronics? I told I'm I'm told I'm there with you. I, I you're not hearing a complaint. I mean, I, I would just be, what would be really interesting is if they could cross the bridge and say, hey, you know, can we make a movie where 
the Transformers really are the characters, and we 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 don't have Chai LaBeouf running around with a supermodel, and you know, and they meet things that are even more alien than they are. I don't know. I mean, I just don't know whether we're ready for that. And uh, Army guys, that was Neil's complaint. Yeah, the the GI Joe characters that didn't really belong in the Transformers movie. Yeah, oh yeah, the 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 nest characters. Yeah, those guys. Yeah, I almost don't notice them in the movie, and yeah, I, I like Josh Duhamel. I think he's kind of an interesting actor. But you're right. You know that I mean, it's like you slip Joe in there, and it's like, well, why not go all the way and really make it Joe? And actually, in this last movie, it would look dangerously like Roadblock, and uh, you know, and yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, he'd probably be, if he were a Joe character, he'd probably be Flint. Maybe Duke, but he's more Flint-like than Duke. To me, I saw um, more Duke than Flint. Well, he's Duke, first of all, blonde. And, and second of all, seems much more kind of, you know, kind of more re- regular army, whereas this guy seems more special operations. Mm. But that's a nuance. We'll, we won't. Okay. He's a real, he's a real G.I. Joe, huh? He's a real American hero. <laughs> Oh God, that's another that's another line thrown into a uh, thrown into a movie just to make it fit. Yep, I think well, that was I think that was more painful than yeah. more than meets the eye in Michael Bay's that's, movie. That's your that's your wink to the franchise. Yeah, you know, I mean, as I said with the Joe movie, I certainly didn't come away feeling bad about it. You know, I came away feeling you know this wasn't nearly as bad as everybody told me it was, and if they they kept him out of the exosuits, I I, I you know I really would have. Uh, I would have liked it a lot better. What ruined the G.I. Joe movie, movie for me was my friend Rob, who was on the show before, was watching it with me, and there's a sequence at the beginning of the movie with a slow-mo with these helicopters shooting at each other that was so ridiculously over the top I couldn't help but chuckle. Rob turned to me and said, shush, this is serious shit going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, know. I mean, there's stuff like... I, I mean, I kind of like the underworld, the submarine stuff and all that. I mean, that that's a movie, you, you know, they... I don't think it benefited by trying to make it, you know, realistic. I think the GI Joe, you want, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, just have fun with it. Uh, you know, yep. hang a lampshade and call it a day. So I've heard. Okay, what I've not read and what I really do want to read, just you know, just simply because I I should, is the whole new run of Cobra, the the IDW GI Joe comics. I've heard those are just fabulous. Hmm, that sounds interesting. I mean, uh, I mean, IDW's Spotlight series are. Hit and miss for me. It's uh, right. what they did with RC was interesting, right? Oh no! Yeah, no, I've just heard nothing but great stuff about it. And you know about the RC Spotlight series, right? Oh no! no, no. Yeah, I know, I, I know about it. Have not seen it. <laughs> okay, that's all I'm going to say because uh, it horrifies yeah, the every time he hears about it. Way into uh, into uh, the movies yet? I don't think no. If they did that with RC in the movies, that would piss Neil off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would that would actually make him really, really pissed off. I would have thrown my drink <laughs> at the screen. <laughs> no, what the what interested me about the IDW was they did a Megatron Spotlight series where they revealed that Megatron's head, the that's actually a helmet, and underneath he has long, luscious wires. No. Yes. No, wait. That's not all hell, Megatron. What 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 was that? It's just a Spotlight book. Yeah. Oh, no. No, no, we don't want that. <laughs> See, I, I always thought that Megatron's helmet was just was just a robot mullet. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. We don't have that. So, so we have confirmation from a guy from G1 that 
Megatron doesn't no, no, have a movable no, no, helmet no. with long luscious. No, that's not a helmet. Okay, I will start here. That's not a helmet. That really is. Yes. All right. Ew. Yeah. No. 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 <laughs> no. That. No. What they were doing was like they were making Megatron Spartacus, and uh, he was competing in like uh, a Coliseum, and of course he he killed Leader One from GoBots as again. Again, it's, it's funny that all these years later, that kind of go butts ad, they still want to give them a, give those guys a swift kick. <laughs> yeah. Well, what happened was Hasbro actually bought GoBot, so they they're allowed to do that. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's funny. Probably bought it just to humiliate it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. So anyway, if you guys want to talk more, just just ping me again, or if there's something I you know didn't answer or something like that. Um, yeah, you know, because I'm around. It's not like I'm, uh, as I said, I'm I'm working on a deadline, so I like the distraction. Okay. Okay, but awesome. It was great to have you on, Flint. It's well, a, great uh, talking uh, to you guys. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a, next time we have you on, we will definitely be a lot more prepared. Yeah, we'll do this. Do me a favor. Put um, li- Link me, though, to this interview, because as I said, we're, we're thinking about putting together a Sunbow book, and there's a lot of material we talked about in here that could be good for it. Awesome. Okay. Okay, great. All right, Amy Winehouse died. I didn't, I, oh, that's kind of too bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not 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 like wholly unexpected, but nevertheless, you know. <laughs> I mean, she she was not living what I would call a, a real coherent life. But anyway, all right. So so we'll talk. Good talking to you guys, and we'll talk soon. All right, uh, and this is this is Ben, and TV's Mr. Neil, and our special guest Flint Dilly. Yeah, see you guys later on. Bye bye. Right. Good night. Good night. The Webcast Beacon Network has been covering and promoting creativity and the creative process since 2007. With the Webcomic Beacon, its newscast, the Tropecast, and Web Fiction World. You know, you can take a break from stupid things on Tumblr to go look at something useful. I would feel cheated if one of my friends said, hey, I wanted to share this comic book, and they gave me three pages torn out of the comic book. <laughs> Depends upon whether or not the action girl is capable of penetrating the wall of stock footage that the magic girl throws up while she's prepping. Not only hung over but i also accidentally ate spoiled cream cheese so i also had my own uh, food poisoning anti-traditional publishing much um, no it's not, nothing to do with that you'd have to be buried like hazmat like an assault <laughs> for three years i've shown up once a week and tried to be serious <laughs> and normally we just sit around talking about boobs but uh... web comics comic news tropes and web fiction all at webcastbeacon.com